are back in Luke chapter 9 today. If you've been with us, you know uh, that we are now at a point in the ministry of Jesus where we really are in the final months leading up to the cross. Uh, well, we don't know specifically exactly, but you know, somewhere around eight to nine months out from uh, what will take place on the cross is where we find Jesus now. And yet, we still have much of Luke to cover. And so what we find in this gospel account that Luke gives us is, is there's great detail about these final months as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and makes his way to the cross. And we've seen uh, many of those details and much happened just in this chapter that we are wrapping up today. We've seen uh, the call uh, of disciples, the sending out of disciples. We've seen the transfiguration. Uh, and we've seen in that uh, the cost that Jesus tells us we will pay if we truly become a disciple. Uh, in Luke 9.23, a, a passage I and others uh, perhaps you quote often that that call to follow Christ is a call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus daily. It's not something we should take lightly. It is a great challenge. And we see uh, the depths and the greatness of the challenge as we come now to a passage uh, that really is, is two what can seem to be separate narratives, and, and they are separate events, and yet I think there's a connection between the two. And we'll look at that today as you have in the first part of our passage uh, Jesus sending messengers before him into this region of Samaria, particularly to a village there, to prepare for he and other disciples to come there. And, and that village just rejects them. They don't want to have anything to do with them. And then from there, as Jesus and his disciples make their way towards Jerusalem, uh, Luke gives us three different uh, incidents, three different accounts of men who uh, in, intend to follow Jesus. And we don't know if any of them actually did because of the cost of what it means to be a Christ follower. So we're going to look at Luke 9, verses 51 through uh, the end of the chapter, through 62. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read today's passage for us. Uh, we stand again because this is the holy word of God. He has spoken to us. And this is what his word says. Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us at uh, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You would pray with me. Father, I do ask this morning that you would give us a desire for the kingdom, a, a 
kingdom desire, a, a burden for it's what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. For those who are with us this morning who have yet to bow the knee to Christ, who have yet to put their trust in Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would call them, that they would respond to that call, but in responding, that they truly would consider what's being asked and consider that the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Lord, that's not a, a consideration we're just asked to when we respond to the gospel. It's something we need to consider every day. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Are, are we willing to pay that price? Are we paying that price? To follow the one who has paid the ultimate price for us. Father, help us to understand these things deeper as we look to your word now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I mention the word cost, <laughs> perhaps your mind, like mine so often, goes directly towards the high cost of everything today. It's not uh, hard to come across another news story, uh, another example of the rising cost of inflation. In fact, it seems like so often every time I have a conversation with someone, uh, what eventually comes up is, is how much this costs now and you know, food costs so much more and uh, everything costs so much more. And, and it just seems to keep going up. And, and we, in those conversations, we, we lament uh, that it used to cost less. We, we kind of groan about what it costs now. But ultimately, it brings us to the question when faced with a, a purchase, a decision, is this a cost I'm willing to pay? Is this price worth it? Those are questions that we probably find ourselves asking in the grocery store. Uh, we find ourselves asking all the time, is, is this worth it? Am I willing to pay this price? Of course, as we come to Luke's gospel and we come to the cost of discipleship, well, we're not talking about a, a monetary cost. We're, we're talking about a much deeper and greater cost. Uh, one that inflation doesn't increase. <laughs> the standard is high. The standard stays high. It doesn't go on sale. It doesn't get cheaper. It is the high cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And it is a cost that we've already been asked to consider in this same chapter. As I've already mentioned, Luke chapter 9, where Jesus says, if you want to come after me, the cost, the price you pay, is you deny yourself. And you take up your cross and, and you follow me. It's a cost that we see mentioned throughout Luke's gospel. In fact, uh, down the road at some point, we'll make it to Luke chapter 14. And, and there, Jesus talks about this cost in saying this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. This is a cost that we see Jesus continue to bring up to those who are considering following him, those who desire to follow him, but he is not suggesting to them uh, that they sit down and make a, a cost analysis of labor and materials before they're going to build a building. On a much deeper level than that, he's saying. But before you enthusiastically say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, 
Think about what that's going to cost. Because if it doesn't cost you anything, you're not really following Jesus. That's essentially what it comes down to. And so I want to look at the costs that are laid down before us today by looking at these two accounts that Luke takes us through. First, in looking at the account of the Samaritan village that rejects Jesus, and particularly how James and John respond to that rejection. And then by looking at these three examples that we see, examples that I think have a thread that, that links them, as each of these men are challenged to follow Jesus, and in that challenge, consider, uh, ask to consider what it actually will cost them to do this. And so let's begin by looking at the first part of this costly call, with the first point there in your outline. Number one, Jesus calls us to become more like him. That the cost, the price we pay when we follow Jesus is the price of sanctification, which is becoming more and more like Jesus. And that, to many of us, sounds like a great cost. <laughs> we, we want to be more Christ-like, don't we? we? We see that as a good thing, but we need to understand to become more and more like Jesus means we have to become less and less like our old selves. We have to put our old self to death. And that's a hard price to pay, as we see here, I believe, with James and John. But before we see that price, let's consider this context. So again, beginning in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. I believe this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ, looking all the way to the end of our gospel accounts, where Christ has been crucified and buried and resurrected, and then in that resurrection ministry, he has then uh, ascended and taken up into heaven. And then that phrase here, for a number of reasons, primarily the language, I believe, refers to that ascension. So Jesus here is not just looking towards the events of his crucifixion, and not even just towards the events of his resurrection. He is looking towards the culmination of all these things when he is taken up. His eyes are on glory. And as he's focused on the glory that is to come, he knows that the path to that glory is the path of suffering. It's the cross. And so he is set on it. That day is drawing near. His focus now is going towards Jerusalem, which as Luke tells us, that phrase there, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's an intentionality here. Well, to go to Jerusalem, he's going to have to travel south. Because what we've seen so far, more recently, is this ministry of Jesus in an area that you can look on a, a map. Some of you have a map in the back of your Bible there. You can look kind of northward to that area of Galilee, and that's where Jesus has been. And then you come down south, and you see Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And to get there, he's got to go through this, uh, this region of Samaria. And it's that particular region that we see him now in this passage sending out his disciples, or some of them, to essentially prepare for them to go through Samaria. And you might wonder, well, what preparations would need to be made? Why, why is it that he's sending messengers ahead of him? And I think perhaps the reason is because at this point, you, you've got a very large group traveling with Jesus. If you look just ahead to chapter 10, you're going to find Jesus next appointing 72 disciples to go out ahead of him into villages and regions he's going to be going and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's sending out 72. As we've already seen, there are hundreds of disciples who are following Jesus this, at this point. 
Now we've seen him set apart the 12. We'll see him set apart the 72. But I think the indication here that Luke's giving us is that Jesus is coming with a very large group of disciples. They are heading towards Jerusalem. His face is fixed on it. They're going to come through Samaria. And so he sends in some of those disciples, some of those messengers, to prepare for their time in Samaria. They would have to do things, for example, like prepare where you know where all these people are going to stay at. And, and so they would be making perhaps those arrangements. They would have to prepare uh, provisions for them, perhaps not just for their time in Samaria, but from there forward going to Jerusalem. And so they're, they're going into the marketplace and they're making these preparations. And as they're having conversations about this, it's becoming clear to the Samaritans that Jesus, this miracle-working rabbi, coming to their village, coming to the region, which you would think would be an exciting thing. You would imagine that those who had sick children would be thinking, we're going to bring our children out and they're going to be healed. People have heard in this region all the things that Jesus has done. But it seems what's become the fixation here is that Jesus is fixed on going to Jerusalem. And that is offensive to the Samaritans to the point that we read in verse 53 but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, if you don't know much about the Samaritans, that may seem a bit peculiar. You know, why would they be concerned with him going towards Jerusalem? And to understand that, you need to understand just a, a bit of the, the hatred that was deeply rooted and embedded between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. This goes back to the history of the Samaritans. This goes back uh, for centuries to when the Samaritans uh, intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors. And this then caused uh, the, the Jewish people to, to look down on them. They saw them essentially as, as half-bred people. They saw them as apostates. And there's a deep rootedness to this to where neither group liked each other very much. And both of them thought they were the chosen people of God. And so what you had among the Samaritans then was they, they had a hatred for the Jewish people. They saw themselves as the rightful heirs to the kingdom, so much so that they would never go to Jerusalem to go to the temple. They built their own temple. And in fact, you can look at the history of the Samaritan people and you can see how they, they essentially mimicked all these things of the Jewish people so that they can say they were the rightful heirs. They were rightfully God's people. They were the rightful chosen ones. And so this wasn't a matter of just, you know, uh, we, we don't have enough room for these folks, and, you know, somebody's got a, a beef with some of these people. They had a disgust for those who would go to Jerusalem to worship the temple. And coincidentally, or not coincidentally, that this time, as we know that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, was a very significant time for the people of God. There are feasts and festivals involved in the calendar as he makes his approach. And so their assumption is that's why they're going. Uh, we don't care for that. We don't want them going there. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They didn't want them to stay there. In fact, verse 53 says very specifically that they did not receive him. Now that, that phrase, they did not receive him, should remind us of a phrase we've already seen because Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 9, in preparing the disciples to go out into villages and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to cast out demons and to heal the sick has specifically already told them, you're going to come to villages who what? Who do not receive you. And what does Jesus tell them to do? Does he say, when you come to those villages that do not receive you, 
I want you to go and get some kerosene. I want you to go find a, a big lighter at the local gas station. And I want you to burn that place to the ground. That's not what he says. What does he tell him? Shake the dust off your feet. Move on. If they don't want to hear what you have to say, shake the dust off, go to the next one. If they don't want to hear what you have to say, shake the dust off, go to the next one. And as I already mentioned, we were in that passage that, that had a traditional significance to God's people because historically, when they would travel through areas and come into the promised land, they would shake the dust off their feet, symbolically saying, we don't want to bring any of that in here. It was both a symbol of the, the purity and the holiness of the land of promise and a judgment on those other areas. And so what Jesus was telling the disciples to do is, yeah, you, you are proclaiming judgment on them, but it's a rather subtle proclamation. You're shaking the dust off your feet. You're moving on. You're going to the next place, and you're going to the next place, you're going to the next place. Because there are places who are prepared who want to hear this gospel message. That's where you need to be right now. And yet, notice how James and John respond here. In verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, if you know much of your Old Testament history, you, you know exactly what they're thinking of here. Remember, not long before this, Peter, along with James and John, are at the Mount of Transfiguration. They fall asleep. They wake up. And they see Jesus in glory. And then in sharing that glory, they see who? Moses and Elijah. Elijah, who had done what to the enemies of God? He had called down fire from heaven and it had consumed him. Your kids, like your pastor's kids, ever had little Bible games that they would play as kids and little things they would imagine? Biblical characters they wanted to emulate? stories they wanted to be a part of, this might have been one. This is a fun story when you're a little kid. I'm going to be Elijah today. I'm going to call down fire from heaven today. That there's a, a soberness, obviously, to the depth of that situation. But when you're looking at that, there's also this glorious display of the righteousness of God in bringing that judgment. That there's something to it that we read and we're like, judgment. That, that wickedness, that sin, it, it's being dealt with rightly by our righteous God. Now, we don't want to think about that judgment coming on us. <laughs> but we think about it coming on others, don't we? I'm not going to get into the particulars because, honestly, it's just disturbing. And I don't want your kids Googling it later on. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say there was a particular group that was invited during a particular month to be a part of wicked celebrations and festivities at a particular city's baseball park. And this celebration involved the grossest mockery of our Lord Jesus and of the cross of Christ. Again, I, I won't share details beyond that, but, but seeing the story, and if you're familiar with it, it, it is nauseating to see what our culture celebrates 
endorses and defends, especially when considering the depths of the mockery toward our Lord Jesus and the God of our salvation. And when we see things like that, or when you just look out in the world and you see those who aren't so much just passively indifferent towards the gospel, but are actively rebelling towards the gospel, towards the created order, towards all that God has created and all that is good, and are shaking their fist at God and are celebrating that which is dark and wicked and evil. There is something inside of us that says judgment needs to come on that. And if in that moment, the headline read, lightning storm comes out of nowhere during baseball game, strikes dead these performers beforehand. There is something inside us that would say, there's a righteousness there. Again, we, we don't want to speculate about it in what we deserve for our sin. But when we see wickedness displayed out there, there's something inside us that that, that needs to be dealt with. James and John here, they're, they're not seeking personal vengeance. You know, the, the Samaritans had not personally wronged them where they have some vendetta they want to take out towards them. They know the history. that They know how these people have responded in the past towards the Jewish people. And particularly what they see now is that their Lord Jesus is being told, don't even come in this town. We have no place for you. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And again, their mindset at the time is Jesus is going to establish the kingdom here and now. It's time to reign. Well, Jesus, if you're going to reign now, you better deal with some of these folks who don't want to have anything to do with you. Or you're going to have a rebellious mess on your hands. So let's just deal with it now. We just saw Elijah in glory. So many people have looked at Jesus as who? As Elijah. Elijah's come. Let's bring that fire down now. A judgment. And make no mistake about it. Fire's coming. And judgment's coming. And in God's grace, He's, he's given us yet another opportunity today to escape that judgment and to trust in Him. But notice how He responds here. Verse 55. He doesn't say, Get the match. Make the call. He turned, verse 55, and he rebuked them. Some manuscripts include in this another verse. And he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That, that should sound familiar because in John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Well, what we see during the ministry of Jesus Christ, as He is on His way to Jerusalem and on His way to the cross, is a ministry of mercy and compassion through which he is calling the vilest offenders to put their trust in him and in the gospel of the kingdom. He is not here saying in any of these verses 
that judgment will be suspended, that judgment won't come, that, that, that you know, God's all love, God's all good, nobody has to worry about hell or judgment or wrath. No, those things are coming. But what Jesus says here specifically is in this time, he has come to preach the message of salvation to save those vile offenders. We, vile offenders. And that doesn't stop, by the way, at the cross and the resurrection and ascension. You go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and of all places that Jesus would specifically name in his call to the disciples and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for them to go out and be witnesses, Acts 1.8, who does he mention? Samaria. And James and John and others <laughs> who wanted to call down that fire on them are told by their Lord Jesus Christ, their resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, now you are empowered by the Holy Spirit and now you need to go and proclaim the gospel to those who wanted nothing to do with me. And by God's grace, that is the very thing that they will do. Well, how do you get there? How did James and John go from we want to bring fire down and judgment on them to spirit-empowered messengers of the gospel who would go back and share the gospel with you? That happens through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. It happens in the same way that God changes your heart and my heart this morning. In the same way that you should be and I should be inviting and praying that God would change our hearts this morning. Because judgment and vengeance are evil. Our flesh cries out. The, the flesh, the heart of the unbeliever cries out. Because even among our unbelieving world and those who want nothing to do with the gospel of the kingdom, there are events and there are people that are so vile and so dark that even an unbelieving world at times will cry out. They need judgment. Something needs to be done with them. And many times they'll tell you exactly what they think needs to be done with them. Why? Because there's something in our flesh calling out to them. And what God does through the power of the gospel is, is in that he takes that which is right and holy and grows it. And he takes that which is fleshly and not of God and puts it to death. And that cost we then pay is we surrender our desire and our right to call down that fire. I'm going to assume that this week you didn't call down fire on anybody. But maybe this spirit was evidenced in your life and mine in the attitude that you had towards someone. That that person that just, there, there's no grace in your life for them. That there's no compassion for them. That they're, they're an enemy in your heart. That, that person that if they came to church, our church, this morning, at this moment, and sat down beside you, you wouldn't be able to, be able to hear a word I say. Because you would just be sitting there. And there's something there deep-rooted. It, it, it might be a total stranger 
that you don't know and there's no history with, but, but just the way they act, they look, they've spoken, there's something in you that just, you know, have any compassion for that person, that, that group of people. It, it's hard enough at times for us to share the gospel with people who are like us, like-minded, same interests. But then those who are so far different than us and so we picture them so far gone, we don't have any compassion for them. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to change them. Because what happens is that sanctifying process where, where we pray and we ask God, give me a burden for those you're burdened for. Give me a heart for those you have a heart for. Help me to love others as what? As you love me. Help me to forgive others as what? As you've forgiven me. That is a work, a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It does not come naturally. And it is a work through which we are putting the old us to death. And the new us is becoming more and more like Jesus. And that is what the gospel will cost you. Number two. The second part here, this costly call we see, is number two, Jesus calls us to replace intentions with actions. Intentions with actions. Let me explain how I get there. Now, these three accounts that we're given, we, we could we, we could do a sermon on each of these and unpack each of these, but I want to kind of take them together because I think there's a common thread that links them. So what you have first is this first man who, as Jesus now, they, they've left this Samaria, this area of Samaria. They're, they're continuing on their journey. Along the way, Luke says, there's a man who makes what we see out of the three, to be the boldest claim to Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. <laughs> and that's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? But some of us in our response to the gospel, whether we said it verbally or not, our heart was, I will follow you, Jesus, as long as you don't call me to go. <laughs> or call me to do. Jesus responds, foxes have holes and birds have air, or birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that's not what Jesus said to Peter. It's not what he said to these others who said they would follow Jesus. Why here? Well, we'll get there. Look at the second person. The second one, Jesus initiates with him, and he says, follow me. Again, we've seen him make that call of others, follow me. But this man says first he wants to go home and bury his father. And that what can seem perhaps one of the harshest statements to us in the gospel. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Third man pops up, maybe in the same context here. Maybe he's been observing and hearing and seeing and listening and says, well, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. More ambiguous and vague than what the man said about burying his father. And yet Jesus makes a particular statement to him. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three encounters with three different men and Jesus responds to each uniquely. So what does one have to do with the other? Well, just painting a broad stroke here, I think what we have is three men with three good intentions who never act on those intentions. 
We don't know what happens with these men. We don't know how they respond. Luke doesn't tell us. The other gospel writers don't tell us. All we know is this was their intention to follow Jesus. But every one of their intentions came with a clause. I intend to do this. I will do this. But first I need to do this. And every single time Jesus responds to that clause and essentially says to them, no. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Luke present us with this? Well, I think perhaps what we see here is what we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus uniquely calls every one of us individually to follow him. And for so many of us, we uniquely have something in our life that is a barrier to following Jesus. And what we see in the Gospel account is that Jesus will uniquely call out that thing Call out that idol. Call out that barrier so that we might understand we cannot follow Jesus on our own terms. And that idol, barrier, God in our life, whatever it is that we hold on to is more and most important in our life. Jesus said you can't have that in heaven. You can't have two masters. You don't get to set the terms by which you will follow Jesus. And so these are these are descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning I don't think what Jesus is saying, for example, to the man who wants to bury his father, that if you go to a funeral, you can't follow Jesus. I don't think he's saying to the man who says, you know, let me first go home and say goodbye to my family, that, you know, before you can be a missionary in Africa, uh, you can never have a family gathering. And yet, that's you know, there are people who take these and other passages to be prescriptive, meaning, well, you know, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. Well, we'll look at this example. And in doing that, I think we miss entirely the point that what Jesus is doing is saying here that there's this specific thing in your life that you've got to deal with, and this is what the gospel is going to cost you. Are you willing to pay this price? So again, the first man enthusiastically wants to follow Jesus and makes this bold claim. I will go with you wherever you go. And Jesus, I think, here is cutting straight to the heart of the issue. And he's reminding him, you know what? I, I don't have a place to lay my head. Why, why would he say that to this man? I think it's because that's the barrier. That's the idol. That essentially this guy's saying, well, I'll follow you. But I'm always going to have a place to come home to. I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I love my pillow. <laughs> I'm always going to be able to come home. My home's my sanctuary. I'm always going to be able to go there. I'm always going to have this particular comfort. I'll give up all other comfort, but I'm going to have this one. And what does Jesus say to this man who doesn't mention any of that to him? He just says, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. Jesus essentially says, oh yeah? Really? It's similar to what Jesus does with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who essentially says, what do I need to do? I'll do anything to inherit eternal life. And Jesus has this divine way with pinpoint accuracy of pointing to the very thing that he knows is a hindrance to us entering the kingdom. The same with the second man, same with the third man. Now, 
Honestly, I think the way we tend to read these calls and these costs is we try to explain them to be as cheap as we can, particularly with the man who says, I need to go bury my father first. And honestly, we don't know with surety exactly what this man is saying. But I have read many commentaries and reviewed many commentaries this week on this passage, and every one of them tries to lower the cost of inflation. <laughs> every one of them, all but one, I believe, essentially tries to explain this one away. Well, his, his father, in this context, what he's really saying is... Uh, you know, his father isn't dead yet. His father's probably not even sick. His father's probably got a long life ahead of him. And he's saying, well, I just want to be here with my father and take care of my family and be with my family. And then, you know, one day when my father passes, then I'll come and follow you. I just, I want to reserve my spot now, if that's okay. Some speculate that the father did not approve of the ministry of Jesus would not want his son to be involved in the ministry of Jesus. And so essentially the son's saying, well, I'm going to honor my father for now. And then, you know, once he's passed and gone and, you know, I get my inheritance from him, then I'll come and I'll follow you, Jesus. But Jesus uniquely is responding to each one of these men. And certainly he could have called out specifically exactly what it was they were wanting to do. And so I think the most plain reading of the text is the hardest reading of the text. And again, I don't know this is the situation, but, but I don't think we should naturally just explain away that the reality of this man, this man was saying exactly what this man said. I'll follow you. i got to go to a funeral first and bury my dad. And Jesus says no. I have dear friends who are missionaries today on the other side of the world who have missed a lot of funerals. I have friends who, in the midst of being called to the mission field, were getting on a plane when a loved one died and they couldn't go back and they moved ahead. I think there's a seriousness and a depth to this call that Jesus puts before us. And for this particular man, whatever it was about what he's asking, it was the barrier and it was the hindrance. What is that barrier for you today? What is it right now if Jesus were to say to you directly, if you want to be my disciple, here's what it's going to cost you that would put you in a situation like these three men. We don't know that any of them responded and acted In our culture, we tend to say it's the thought that counts, but when it comes to following Jesus, it is not the thought that counts. It is the action. And the reality is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so, this is not a call for you to vow, to commit, to intend to do anything. It's a call for you and I to act. It's a call for us to repent of sin, to turn from whatever it is, whatever idol is in our life, whatever it is we hold dear with. And these might be good things, but they can't be first things. 
the call for us to die to all of us and put our trust fully in our Lord Jesus and to consider the cost of doing that. So let's consider that cost now together as we stand together and pray in response to God's word.